Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, compassion for all beings, Ewoks, gun control, science fiction, and much, much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and New York Times best-selling author of books including Buddha's Brain, Hardwiring Happiness, and his new book, Resilient. Rick began meditating in 1974, has trained in several traditions, and teaches at meditation centers around the world. I've known Rick for around a decade, and we meet regularly for dinner and lively discussions about world politics, the relative merits of various science fiction books, and thoughts about meditation practice. This interview took place at Rick's home in San Rafael, California. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Eddie's in the Mind Stream. Rick, welcome to Deconstructing Yourself. Happy to be deconstructed. Excellent. That's what we do here. So didn't you just get done reading your new book as an audiobook? Yeah, and it really made me appreciate singers, period, and singers who run around a stage dancing physically, because to sit and project for basically four days of recording is a physical it's a very blue collar kind of thing (laughs) to read a book over a four-day period so you found it actually physically taxing yeah i had to be very careful with what i was saying i had to enunciate i had to control my breath and just while sitting passively in a chair in a cushy scene reading off of a music stand But just thinking about, I don't know, Jennifer Lopez and other people, Justin Bieber, (laughs) running around the stage dancing while belting out these tunes in perfect harmony, it made me respect it even more. So anyone who's listening to your audiobook of Resilient can imagine you imagining Jennifer Lopez as you were reading it. (laughs) That's right. That's right. You can go there. Okay, well, thank you for being open to being dragged back in front of a microphone, a blue-collar microphone, as it were, here in your lovely home in NorCal. So I'm curious, do you have anything you want to share about the Resilient book? Well, in a deep way, it's a very practical take on one of the most fundamental topics in Buddhism, which is called equanimity which really means essentially hanging out, engaged with life, while not being caught by contraction, drivenness, craving, broadly defined. So the question then becomes, how do you actually do that with a body that's evolved to crave and suffer in order to survive and pass on genes that pass on genes? So to me, the book really is about how to repeatedly feel like your needs are met, have something to do with opioids? Uh, I'm not going to go there yet. But anyway, no, it's really a trip to just kind of think about the paradox that it's when we feel like our needs are not met that we get disturbed and agitated and troubled and irritable, including in really subtle ways. But we're not designed to feel like our needs are met because then you lose your edge as a little critter, right? Stay hungry, my friends. So in other words, you always want something. There's a tendency in us. So then how do you train the brain and the body 
and the being all together so that it isn't complacent or apathetic or indifferent. It's engaged in life. And weirdly enough, one of the best ways to do that is to repeatedly internalize the feeling of primary needs being met. In other words, your safety, satisfaction, and connection that are your primary needs. And so, which loosely associate with uh, reptilian brainstem and mammalian subcortex and primate human cortex stages of evolution, inner lizard, mouse, and monkey, etc. Anyway, it's complicated in my mind, probably overly complicated. In the book, it's much more simple. It's much more direct and so on. But that topic of how do you grow inner strengths so that you can hang out, as I put it, at the front edge of now, fully engaged with life without being disturbed in your core. Maybe around the edges of your awareness, there's irritation or anxiety or hurt. But in your core, there's a fundamental quality of, in terms of our three needs, peace, contentment, and love. That's cool. It's funny, you know, a part of my work is in the corporate sphere, attempting to kind of re-engineer the DNA of big, mainly tech companies to make work a kinder experience, a more relaxed experience and a more engaged experience and creative experience. And one of the things I found is that words have different meanings in different companies. And one of them that surprises me is, I think you and I have a, a similar vocabulary, maybe coming from Buddhist perspective or something, but resilience and resiliency or being resilient, that's a really positive thing. It has this kind of very robust kind of flavor when I think of it. But what I've discovered is that in certain company subcultures, it's got a really negative tinge of of meaning something like grit, like just bear it. And, you know, you have resilience if you can work 80 hours and just keep doing it no matter how much it's hurting you. Now, that's not what you mean by resilience, I presume. No, and there's a larger consideration here which has to do with the ways in which personal development, for good reasons, good purposes, can be co-opted or used by organizations or nations, really, to keep people kind of sort of patched up so they can be exploited even more efficiently. Yeah, this is the big criticism of the mindfulness movement, right? We're just going to allow people to be subjugated and abused more effectively. Yeah, exactly. It's been a critique of uh, psychotherapy in the past that all we're doing basically is patching people up even more efficiently so they can be harmed even more deeply out on the battlefield of corporate America, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I take the critique. I know what you're talking about. First of all, to really think about life as needing to be adaptive and to cope. So a squirrel in my backyard, an ant crawling along the concrete, or big complicated monkey like us. We've got to cope, we have to adapt, we have to continually adjust to changing conditions. We have to keep finding our footing on uneven ground. How do we do that? Well, that process, or more exactly the capabilities inside that enable us to do that are the essence of resilience that resilience enables us both to bounce back from adversity, but it also helps us keep pursuing our aims, including big dreams, potentially, or commitments to social justice or to other people, to keep pursuing them in the face of challenges of various kinds. So resilience is much more than some sort of static quality of grit that's usually also described as you got it or you don't. 
And what interests me, and I know it interests you a lot too, is how do we cultivate? How do we actually develop and grow? As you know, probably a third of the causes of personal attributes are baked into our DNA, but the other two-thirds, ballpark, on average, of the causes that shape individual variations have to do with non-genetic factors, other forms of influence, like culture, personal effort, your own psychology, what you do with your own mind. Now, the papers I saw said it was about 50% genetic, 40% upbringing, kind of 10% random. The way I'm talking about it, first of all, is to distinguish heritable factors and then non-heritable factors. Mm -hmm. So heritable factors, it's a way of talking about genetic factors. That is really about a third of the average variation. Only 30%. A third roughly because, and this is what gets really interesting, it was originally described as 50-50 nature-nurture, in effect. And under the nature category is what's heritable. The nurture category is everything else, loosely. Including not just the nurturance or harms that come at us from the outside in, but also our own efforts from the inside out. Learning of any kind. Yeah, yeah. Effort, uh, listening to this podcast Mm -hmm. and taking away, oh, that's maybe something useful, you know, et cetera. We can only hope. Yeah, really. But those studies were done on, in most cases, identical twins separated at birth and adopted into very, very different environments. But what that does, and then later studies have found this out, is that diminishes the impact of so-called nurture. In other words, it diminishes the effect of environmental influences because people get adopted into predominantly middle-class and upper-middle-class families. And so it therefore overestimates the impact of heritable factors. And when you do clever statistical things that psychologists have learned to do because their domain is so messy, which is what interests me about it as a psychologist, when you correct for that, ballpark-ish, it's about a third, two-third. And again, that's an average number because, again, in terms of individuals, a particular person could be profoundly affected by some heritable factor or something that went awry in their own DNA, like a birth defect of some kind, using the term loosely. Or another person could be incredibly affected by some kind of environmental event. So these one-third, two-thirds numbers are really about averages and populations as a whole. That said, the takeaway for me is, man, there's a lot you can do on your own. No matter what life has dealt you, no matter what the past has been, there's a lot you can do on your own in the next minute to cultivate and grow as much as you can, minute by minute, day by day. Right. You know, another word that you were using that I find is surprisingly, shockingly varied in the way people understand it is equanimity. This is not a normal English word. This is a word that... (laughs) It's an SAT word our kids would say when they were younger. Oh yeah, that's an SAT word. Yeah, right. And it's a thing that scholars of religion use to try to translate a Buddhist term, and it's a very old Christian religious word. And so nobody knows what it means. And very often I see people interpreting it very commonly, actually, as nothing ever bugs me. Mm -hmm. My dog got hit by a car. I feel fine. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone I love is dead. I feel great. It's got, you know, there's this sort of like idea that you would never have a bad feeling. And that's what you're going to get out of, say, meditation. Now, I know that is exactly what you mean by equanimity, correct? No, no, no. And immediately I thought of, I don't believe I've ever said 
this story publicly. So you asked me before we did this, hey, Rick, what have you never talked about? So, rah, rah. well, I was sitting with a guy once. This was in the context of a big sort of human potential organization I was involved with back in my mid-20s. When dinosaurs roamed the earth. That's right. In my mid-20s. That's right. Late 70s. And this guy was saying exactly the same thing. We were at a restaurant and there was another mutual friend sitting there. And I was just inspired in the moment to pick up a glass of ice water and throw it in his crotch. (laughs) Literally. And he just stared at me in amazement. You actually did it? I did it. I did it for real. I dumped it on his crotch. Because that was sort of the larger context. We could sort of do that sort of stuff without getting punched in the face. It was like a growth opportunity for him, right? Easier for him than for me. And I said, hey, do you feel anything now? And yeah, he definitely was pissed off and affected by that event. He's not (laughs) equanimous. Well, to get to the heart of it, I think the point you're making is really, really important because as, as a teacher of mine once said to me, who would want to have a heart so peaceful as not to be moved by the suffering of another person? Yeah. When you have this image in your mind, as I'm always saying, the kind of cosmic Teletubby who's just, you know, tripping along through yeah. everything is fine no matter what. That's not a healthy individual. That's like pathology. Yeah, exactly. So this question has interested me a lot, including taking into account individual variations, because diversity is socially constructed from the outside, but there's also, one could say, innate diversity, including a temperament. Some people are more sensitive to other people than others are. There's a natural range of the degree to which people's emotions are labile or they're fluid and dynamic and changing. And so for me to boil it down, and I try to do this in my own practice, and I I find this actually happens this way, is one can become increasingly sensitive, really, to other people and to the world around, while also having this ongoing sense of a, here's where the words get problematic because they get overly concrete, a core or a level or a space inside through which these experiences flow that is itself undisturbed by the disturbances and feelings and of all kinds rolling through it. And as a little bit of a kind of a very, for me, psychological kind of language, I think about a saying that is actually attributed to the Buddha, purportedly he said it, which is as he described his own movement toward, let's say, what he would call his awakening, he said essentially, all kinds of painful thoughts and feelings and sensations arose, but they did not invade my mind and remain. That's the distinction. He did not say they weren't happening. Correcto. Right. So he might have been having fear, anger, jealousy, doubt, outrage, whatever, but they weren't affecting that core space. That's right. They did not invade and remain. I I think about the language of Occupy Wall Street in a sense, or just occupation. We don't let them occupy us Mm. and take us over. And that's very different than not having those feelings. That's totally right. It's a lower bar. And also, I think this way of talking about it is a corrective to the ways in which our culture, Western culture, to some extent, just sort of always wants to be happy and uh, pleasurized and so forth. And the ways in which many people, including in many industries, have a value on numbing themselves and becoming inert inside. 
I think sometimes about the ways in which we've replaced a lot of our older stories with newer stories, many of which come out of sci-fi in one way or another, such as uh, you know the Star Wars mythology or Star Trek and the typology of Spock, who hyper-rational, doesn't feel anything, or the Vulcans don't feel anything. And then we have Bones, who's all id, all affect, the Dr. McCoy, just feels everything and expresses everything. And then we have more the ego, as it were, Captain Kirk, who can go both ways and is always trying to balance between the two of them. So I I just think, yeah, it's not about numbing out. It's about developing an emotional kind of resilience so that you can dare to take risks and you can dare to really open your heart to everybody because in the balance of compassion and equanimity, you can manage, wow, what you feel when you really, boom, feel that suffering out there. Yeah, I'm reminded of this experiment that Richie Davidson's lab did. And when I was visiting the lab, they hooked me up with the similar gear that had been used in the experiment, which is like a this plastic box that applies like water heat to your wrist and they can very finely control the temperature of the water and how long it's on for and it really hurts without damaging your tissue so it's like a pain box that they put on your wrist and yeah the gom jabbar exactly and it's fascinating what they discovered which was they were testing two groups one were naive subjects the other group was tibetan monks with like something like you know 40 50,000 lifetime hours of meditation and you know this was about physical pain but we could presume that emotional pain would be similar have a similar profile the monks actually felt the pain worse than the naive subjects based on their fmri Pain center activation. Um, Pain center activation in the brain. It was higher. But, and this was the really important point, it only lasted as long as the pain was on. The minute the pain was disapplied, it was turned off, their brain turned off that pain center also. And they were back to an equanimous state. And not worried about the next pain. That was part two. But, you know, it was like they actually weren't numb at all. They felt it worse. But the minute the stimulus was turned off, they weren't in pain anymore. The naive subjects felt it not quite as acutely. But when the researchers turned off the pain, their brain's pain center kept going and going and going and going and going. So, you know, Richie and crew colloquially call this feature stickiness. The monks have overcome the stickiness of the experience. They let go of it immediately. It's very fascinating. And the comment you made about predicting it, the next part of the experiment was they would say, hey, you're going to feel that same pain in five seconds. The monks, no problem. They're still totally even until the pain is applied. The naive subjects, the minute they were told they were going to feel the pain, their pain center activated. So can you speak to that at all? Wow. I think in so many ways, that's (laughs) at the heart of a lot of issues. And to use a metaphor you're familiar with of the first and the second dart, it's a Buddhist metaphor. It's the idea that a first dart is inevitable discomfort, inevitable pain. You can't avoid it. It's there, for example, in in the experiment, the hot water on your wrist. Okay, fine. So you're using the word dart, like an arrow, arrow or a quarrel or whatever. Barb. Yeah. Yeah. The brick on your foot. 
bam, it drops, it hurts. Your child leaves home, you feel sad, or your child yells at you, or something happens, you feel bad about it, it's gonna hit you. But then there's the second dart, so-called, of all our reactions to that first dart, which in a sense is all the suffering we construct ourselves. It's the add-on. And would you say that in your interpretation, that's what's causing that stickiness, that continuing activation of the pain center? I wouldn't say causing. It's just a way to talk about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, gosh, one of the things to neurologize is just a smidge that's really interesting. If you look at... Neurologize away, please. Oh, okay. So if you just reflect on the fact that the brain has tripled in size in the last two, three million years... At the same time that our tool manufacturing hominid ancestors, our ancestors began making stone tools by using tools. So now we have a brain that's tripled in volume. For what? Well, a very large part of that uh, build out is related to social functions. This is the so-called social brain theory. But the other part of the build out is to develop these uh, networks in the midline of the cortex that enable so-called mental time travel. So we're going to predict things. Yeah. In other words, yeah, we can imagine a horrible future. Oh, my goodness, it's going to hurt so much the next time they put the pain on my wrist, for example. Or I'm going to feel so embarrassed or nervous if they criticize me, if I speak up in the meeting, so I better not. Um, Or that really hurt a minute ago. That hurt, that hurt. Oh, very right. And you you can perpetuate it. Yeah, you can also loop around it through ruminating. You can keep it going. And also you can obsess about the past or criticize yourself about the past. Now, this capacity to imagine different potential futures, one term for that kind of thing would be affective forecasting, where we imagine different scenarios more casually. Should I get Chinese food tonight or Mexican food or just stay at home and eat nothing? What would be better? Well, Okay, that's a really useful thing for a caveman, cavewoman to be able to do. It's also really useful to be able to think about and reflect on and evaluate past events and extract even more learning from them. All right, great. It's adaptive. It helped our ancestors increase their odds of living to see the sunrise and eating lunch today instead of being lunch today. That's a good thing. But It's left us today able to be Woody Allen, able to obsess about our past and go over and over and over. Resentment, regret, woulda, coulda, shoulda, why did they treat me like that? Round and round we go. And it also enables us to live in the future in ways that are not healthy and useful. I call it the simulator. We're in the simulator, running little mini movies, and you can watch it all day long. And I think one of the great things about the kind of training those monks went through and people who are not monks can do as well is you become much more able to be a choice so that you can consciously choose to imagine different scenarios and you know what it would feel like in different ones and get more skillful at that. You can also reflect on your past and make meaning out of it and learn lessons from it that are useful. But you can do that at choice. And otherwise, you can increasingly hang out just at the front edge of now in the moment, not worried about what's going to happen next and not carrying the past with you like a bunch of stones in your backpack. You know, I am active on Twitter and I announced I'm going to talk to Dr. Rick Hansen. Let me know what you want to ask this guy. Rut row. Rut <laughs> And you know, it's the same question that I've always asked you, that everyone always asks you. So you're probably used to getting this question, but I want to draw you out on it a little bit. And that is like crusty old Zen dudes were like, 
why would I want to feel good all the time? My practice is not about changing my emotions. It's about accepting the way I'm feeling and just letting that be there. And to be fair, let's say they probably were just skimming the marketing materials on your website, which are like, how to feel happy all the time. No. Keep going. Something like that. And so there's this push and pull between changing how you're feeling and accepting how you're feeling. Mm. I know that you and I have kind of gone round and round about that. I'd like to unpack it a little bit because it is an interesting question. I suspect that neither one of those is the ultimate answer. We want to be able to do both. Mm -hmm. However, work with me here. Why, Why aren't we just accepting how we're feeling? Yeah. Huge, deep question. A very legitimate one. And one that I've reflected on a lot and tried to think clearly about and practice with, most fundamentally. For me, that's the real bottom line priority. How do we practice related to this kind of question? And there are different ways into it. One way into it is that both in my own personal history, starting with my very, very earliest memories and then running through childhood, teens, 20s and beyond, And then also professionally, as someone who got a near master's in developmental psychology and who has been also a parent to now adult kids, one of the things that is really, to me, a central fact of the human experience or being human is learning. We learn to walk instead of crawling. We learn to be more skillful with other people rather than a dickhead. We learn how to disengage more rapidly from internal mind streams that are cranky or not useful. So we learn, we develop. I don't think anyone would argue against learning, useful learning. We become more skillful, we become more competent, we become more capable in a variety of ways, including learning that's directed internally, that's directed inwardly. In addition to learning directed externally, like how to operate a forklift or a spreadsheet or run a meeting more effectively, it's how to be more skillful, more competent with our own mental processes, our own stream of consciousness, our own phenomenology. So right off the top, there's a place for learning. And then learning by definition involves development. It involves change, including the learning that is healing working through past issues, the letting go, forgiving oneself, forgiving others, moving on, releasing feelings and so forth. So first point, there is a place for learning. And that process is by definition, at least in the natural frame, bound up in time. It develops over time, it's progressive. It's a matter of gradual cultivation, gradual lease, gradual transformation. So there is inherently a process of change. Change is going to happen. And we are also embodied and our bodies are designed to be affected by the larger world in which we live, including through processes of changing the nervous system through the experiences that we're having. So we have a nervous system that itself is continually changing, learning very broadly defined. And it's also, as you know, biased toward negative learning. That's the negativity bias. My shorthand for which is we have a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. It's much harder for us to take in or remember or learn from positive experiences. Yeah. And we very rapidly internalize uh, negative ones. And so that's right there, the nature of it. So right off the top, there is a natural process of learning. And 
I understand the critique of people who are just trapped in self-improvement and obsessing with it, and it's a kind of form of narcissism. And, and also it can create a lot of suffering where people compare themselves and they want to become happier and wiser, and now they're going to beat themselves up for it. All right, I get that problem. But I also get, in my view, the much larger problem of complacency or of lack of skillfulness about the learning process itself. Wouldn't you say that one way of understanding equanimity is simply acceptance of what's arising? Yes, and. So that is the easy part, I think. It's there, it's arising, relatively easy. Okay, I'm accepting it. And also, what's my relationship to it? So I can accept it, but accepting the desire to slug somebody that rises in my mind doesn't mean that's all that's going on. There's some kind of regulation of oneself that's called for, and hopefully there's some kind of learning that would be useful over time so that when we get better at regulating the desire to slug somebody or run into them with your car, that desire rises in my mind when certain drivers do certain things, but also over time to help yourself not have it arise at all. I mean, there's a developmental process. And frankly, Michael, I think it's bizarre the kind of arguments people make against normal processes of learning. There are pitfalls all around us. Yes, there are pitfalls in being caught up in self-improvement. Fine. I got to say, as a guy who's sort of been in the world, including the business world, a long time, for every one person I ever met out of L.A. usually who is like obsessed with their chakra purification, self-improvement process, I've met 500 other people who just sort of marinate in their suffering, doing little about it, while really harming and hurting other people all around them. So I think, what's the greater problem? right? It's a little bit like for me, you know, the whole concern about recovered memory syndrome, you know, falsifying memories of childhood abuse. Okay, some unskillful certain kinds of therapists did tend to provoke those kind of false memories of bad things that happened, or sometimes people can invent memories of bad things that happened. All right. But for every one of those, there are 10 or 20 or 100 other cases where people did recover memories that were actually authentic and were corroborated by third parties of what really happened. And there are also people who remember what happened, but they've never talked about it and they're still affected by it. So, okay, we have problems. Which is the larger problem? And then why do we give the more trivial problem so much attention? So, as you know, this is a bit of a bee in my bonnet. Bottom line for me, the deeper matter, though, is it seems silly to me to dismiss either gradual cultivation or sudden awakening. It seems silly to me to dismiss either helping yourself grow and learn and heal in useful, reasonable ways over your day and your life, while at the same time deepening in your awareness of the underlying perfection and beautifulness and profundity that's always already there. And I think that both are true. Both are true. We have a body which supports a mind inside the natural frame. And why not work with it over time? I think it's ironic that there are people who are really mindful of the body, but they don't take into account that we are body full of mind. Yes. They don't really track the implications. They talk the talk about how important embodiment is in reasonable and practical ways. You don't need a PhD in biochemistry to do this. They dismiss 
the implications of true of real embodiment. I've been sort of, yeah, no, I have invited you on the show in order to have you rant. So <laughs> rant on. What I'm noticing is that when you make that move from the initial question into this embodiment thing, it feels like we're on a new topic. Let's say in the context of this, where you started, I have been in the presence many times of people who say essentially, or I've read a lot of people who say essentially, just recognize, and then the details vary slightly, but there are various versions of, just recognize that it's all God anyway, and you'll be fine. Or just recognize that it's all non-dual, everything is one, uh, it's all unfolding perfectly. Just simply drop into that recognition and you're good to go. And any form of effort uh, that's aimed at a goal and therefore it's something that's dualistic in effect because it's distinct from what's currently the case. Any sort of goal-directed effort is dualistic and egoic and bad. So just drop into the ultimate man. This is total spiritual bypassing. And I'm like, yeah, and there are people, there are people who say that from their realization. They are dropped in. You bet. They are fully dropped in. I feel the shivers when I talk about it. I look at them and I think, I want more of that. And um, <laughs> that's cool. And there are people, uh, often we have the experience that we can drop in there. Like, I definitely can drop in there. I will, you know, the question is, can you stay there? Can you sustain it? And can you be lived fully by that second after second, day after day? <laughs> With a job and a relationship yeah. and children. And a monkey brain and a Stone Age brain Yeah, in the real world. Okay. So and what's the answer to that? The question? answer is most people can't. Yeah. And so you're left with how do you cultivate the conditions in the natural, in the body? I use the term natural frame for the realm of physics, which includes a lot of wild and crazy stuff, but it's basically just physicality, the body, right? How do you drop there, especially to the extent that you consider that what you are apprehending or being lived by or having intimations of or accessible to, et cetera, et cetera, is something that's transcendental. That's by definition, otherwise we don't need the distinction in the word, that's by definition categorically distinct in some meaningful sense from the natural domain. Like, how do you actually do that? In most cases, the people who are there went through a long process of purification and development and healing and transformation and learning. They didn't just wake up one day and suddenly they were there. And if they did, and there are cases definitely of people who just kaboom, they're there, Whew. they have a really hard time. They have a very hard time. Inducting others into that state. And when they do, they usually teach fundamentally in a progressive way, which for me is like this. It's the classic teaching, and the saints and sages say better than I do, where you help the body along while helping yourself be more and more abided as the ultimate. And that's practice. And I have a lot of notions about skillful practice based on how the brain works in regard to that. It seems like that's the essence of the process. People on the dogmatic atheist side that just dismiss the capability or the possibility of feeling 
that you are a local expression of all physical reality, which includes energy equals mc squared, let alone the possibility of a transcendental, I think, why would you just dismiss that? That's not a fundamentally scientific attitude, among other weaknesses in that view. Flip the other way, people who just go, oh man, there's nothing to be gained from healing, development, learning, acquisition of skills, increasing competence, etc. No, no, don't do that. Just drop into everything, man, you'll be fine. I just think, whoa, what motivates that kind of dismissal? I don't get it. I really don't. I, and then I find it quite interesting culturally and psychologically. What motivates that dismissal? It seems so foolish to me. And when you say that dismissal, you mean the second? Of either one. Of either one. Yeah. Yeah. The one we're talking about is the second dismissal. Yeah. And, you know, you know very well where it's coming from, right? It's coming from the understanding that we don't really want to push and pull our emotions around, that there is this space behind them or this context within which this arising and passing of emotion is not disturbing the background. And by pointing at that more and more in oneself, or I should say by practicing, mm -hmm. noticing that undisturbed background, yeah. you can get an attitude of like, so who cares what's happening in the foreground of emotion? Yeah, I think that's a very good practice. And then the question is a personal individual skillfulness. What's useful for this person at this time in this situation and so forth? And it could well be that for an individual, allocating attention and effort to working with the mind stream, including its emotional and sensate and desire, fancy word, conative aspects, intentionality. Conative. Yes, C-O-N-A-T-I-V-E. I learned that word in way back with developmental psychology. It's not commonly used. But anyway, so yes, I'm aware of the fact that personally, I'm very good at working with the mind. So I have to watch out for the fact that I'm good at it is another reference to Dune besides the Gom Jabbar. One of the profound points made in that book, Frank Herbert's masterpiece, Dune, is toward the end when uh, one of the main characters points out a weakness in the fact that the emperor's legions, the Sardaukar, had never lost. They were so incredibly good as warriors, they'd never had to face defeat. And so strengths can become a weakness. I have a great strength, in part through training and working with the mind. So I have to be very careful that I don't get hijacked by my strengths. Often we're more vulnerable to trouble with our strengths and our weaknesses because we know about our weaknesses. And it's been a matter of enormous personal practice for me to do the kind of work you're describing. And my practice these days is much more of that sort than nudging my mind stream one way or the other. So you're open to this view of... I embrace it. Yeah. I'm in. Yeah. I'm in. I love it. It's deep. But in my view, it's often presented as the greater view compared to the lesser Hinayana view. You bet. Yeah. Of the acquisition of virtue and the release of the so-called defilements and the hindrances and so forth, which is a more progressive developmental process. Frankly, I'll really say it. Many of the people that I've met in a very full, and I'm getting older, been down this, been in some business for a while. Uh, many of the people I've met who yak the yak of drop in, man, be everything, just recognize the nature of your phenomenology rather than nudging it, nudging content one way or another, are themselves pretty unhappy 
interpersonally unpleasant to deal with, constrained and limited and swept along by their own tendencies, lacking insight into them along the way, and not very nimble or adept with being able to choose. When is it most effective to be with the mind? And when is it most useful, beneficial, etc., etc., to work with the mind? Good. So in the context of accepting that there is a role for learning, you know, in the natural frame, in the dualistic world, we can learn, we can become better at interacting with people, we can learn to have nicer inner experiences and deliver nicer inner experiences for others. We, we can learn how to uh, recognize more of the empty nature of our phenomenology rolling along. Yeah. That's another kind of learning as well. You bet. What I was going to ask is, accepting that that's a useful thing to do, which is, you know, it's a funny thing to even have to talk through, but having talked through it, how do we engender positive states? How do we work at actually improving our mental clarity and our the acuity of our mind and our interpersonal skills, the kind of stuff you're teaching in your books and courses? Well, I want to ask the question the way I want to answer it. Good, please. Because... It is so easy, not that you are, but it is so easy to slide into a kind of dismissal of the process of, let's say, skillful cultivation, skillful development. And also, it's possible to miss the ways in which myself contextualize it. Now, people use teachings and offerings in the ways that they do. And to be clear, most of the people that are engaging my own niche of self-help are pretty mainstream people. They're not people who've done tons and tons of mental training. Most of them have never meditated or gone on a retreat or done therapy or anything. And they are where they are and they're trying to make use of what would help them. So the question is, is that a bad thing? Because it's not the whole profound package. I don't think it's a bad thing. And I don't think that people who make use of something that helps them take the next step up and out of whatever is problematic and suffering or unskillful for them is going to somehow prevent them from doing ultimate practices. It's not either or. If anything, it tends to move people, in my observation, toward those more ultimate practices. So that's a comment on how I do things and what I'm trying to do. The other thing I would add is that it's helpful to grow skills and resources inside ourselves and much as we would see another person, if you saw another person and you could say something to that person along the lines of, you know, if you think about X, you won't be so sad. And X is a real thing. It's a true thing. If you reflect on some X that's true and you're not so sad, or if you help yourself remember why the next time you go into an argument with your spouse, it's likely to go better, right? Or if we could see a person who's recognizing certain things in their life that are really true, and, and if they slow down just a smidge, could feel more grateful about them or happier about them. Or we see someone over there who could become potentially kinder and more compassionate and more helpful to another person and less prejudiced and mean to that person. Would we not wish that for them? Would we not consider it moral to wish that that other person became happier and suffered less and was wiser and kinder and more loving with other people. We would wish that for them. And if it were relatively simple and straightforward for us to 
help them or offer something that would enable them to move in that direction or influence them in some ethical, reasonable way to move in that direction, we would want that. We would do that. Yeah, well, anyone would do that. Yeah, well, not anyone, because we won't go political in the moment. But anyway, so the question is, if it's virtuous, benevolent, wise, kind, skillful, liberal in the broadest sense, let's say, etc., to do that for others, why is it somehow taboo to do that for ourselves? That seems ridiculous to me. It's a silly double standard. So, so you're not just getting caught up in likes and dislikes and attempting to yank your emotions around. There's something else at work there. Again, tends to reduce what I'm talking about in a way that I, I reject the Kobayashi Maru scenario. I, I reject that's a Star Trek reference, which is not actually apt. But anyway, I kind of reject that notion. The rejecting is apt. So here you are. Let's get real. See, again, what happens, this often gets tossed out yes. to me as a straw man, to use that expression, abstractly. And at the abstract level, oh, how horrible, manipulate your mind stream. Well, there I was last night arguing with my wife about the temperature to set an electrical space heater. And we were caught up in the argument. I wanted yeah, to the, the stakes were high. The stakes were high. Well, of course, in the real argument are deeper stakes, like what you're telling me what to do? What? You're not listening to me. You don't care. Round and round. OK. And I was, all this stuff's arising in my mind. And I have, like you, really deeply consistent real time recognition of the emptiness of my mind stream, the silliness of it the ways that it's caused by a vast collection of causes, factors, most of them outside of me, the, like I'm a local ripple in an ocean of causes. I'm right there. I'm right there. And all this stuff is coming up. I'm getting mad. I'm getting irritated. We're getting heated. It's on. Bing, bing, bing. And in the middle of all that, I start nudging my perspectives in a better direction. I start putting the issue in perspective. I start looking at her more closely, for example, to try to understand, wow, this is surprising to me that you care this much about this. Why? And I care about her and I want to help her. So I'm doing little things that I consider skillful and wholesome to nudge my mind stream in a better direction. I, I start deliberately letting the tension drain out of my body. I start deliberately feeling more my breathing in my heart area as I'm talking. So I'm less likely to get intense and staccato and channeling my critical father or something like that, rat tat tat, I'm doing little things. Should I not do those things while also recognizing the unfolding emptiness of the mutual mind stream we're both part of? Blech. Of course I should do both things. You know I agree with you, but I'm just going to... Put I don't know that. <laughs> I'm going to put it out there just to help the discussion along. Yeah. You know, aren't you pushing and pulling? Yeah, I am pushing and pulling. With a bunch of judgment about what's Absolutely. a good experience. Yeah. Right. So how does that work together with accepting the unfolding arising? I like to say I'm familiar with this critique. It's a question. I... This question. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. And it often comes abstractly. So again, let's make it real. Yeah. Um, I judge that stopping at red lights is usually better than running them. I judge that feeding children is better than starving them. On any given day, I judge that when my back starts to ache because I'm sitting in a chair too long in one position, then it's useful to move. If we set, you know, some cyanide in a glass in front of you, you probably wouldn't drink it. Yeah, that's right. And so there's no problem inherently in 
having preferences per se, and there's no problem with discernment in evaluation. And I'm perfectly comfortable with judging myself or other people in certain kinds of ways. How can you be skillful? How can you acquire greater skill at hitting a tennis ball or driving a car or interacting with other people or abiding in the moment with your own mind stream without some recognition of what would be more or less helpful in relationship to values? Yes. There's no way around that. You know, living is goal seeking. All life is goal seeking. There's an architecture of aims from tiny, tiny microscopic regulatory processes inside cells, all the way up to the loftiest aspirations that to relieve the suffering of all beings everywhere. The issue is not with wanting per se, or with values per se, or goals per se, or distinctions per se. The question is, can I want well? Yes. Yeah. Can I use my powers for good? And in my case, recognizing that I'm very good at manipulating my mind stream, I make sure I use my own powers for good. And I'm good at influencing others. I got to use my powers for good in that regard, too. But we're always influencing and we are being influenced routinely by external forces. They're influencing our mind stream. They're pushing and prodding our emotions this way and that. No way around it. So the question is, are we being skillful in the degree to which we're exercising influence inside ourselves, or to put a little differently in more traditional terms you're familiar with, that we're engaging wise effort. So are we skillful in the extent to which we're exercising influence, nudging things one way or another, holding them or folding them? And also, are we skillful in how we're applying the degree of the influence that we're exercising moment to moment to moment? To me, that's the proper question, not whether we should do it at all. And so how do you do that skillfully? Well, I have a framework that helps me. And inside the natural frame, I think there are basically three kinds of ways to relate to your mind stream, your thoughts, your feelings, your experience. Experiences are occurring. There is hearing, there is thinking, there is feeling, there is remembering, there is sensing, etc. The first great way is simply to be with what's there. I think that's the most fundamental practice. It's our last resort, and it's also what we tend to evolve into. And so I would categorize the kinds of things you're talking about in terms of simply fully accepting what's there and having insight into the nature of phenomenology, the nature of experience as transient, impermanent, compounded, made up of many parts, uh, dependently arising, and in a fundamental sense, ownerless and thus selfless in some deep fundamental sense, that's being with the mind. It's in a less, not so lofty a way. That's where we feel the feelings fully. We experience the experience. We're really present. Maybe we investigate. Maybe we sense down to what's more vulnerable, more fundamental. Maybe we apply insight, vipassana as a term that some people are familiar with, to what the experience is. Maybe in the process of all that, what we're experiencing changes, but in the moment, we're not nudging it. We're not deliberately pushing it one way or another. So that's type one. Type one, be with what's there. Okay. Type two, of all the methods, I look out 
I've been around the block. I haven't uh, ridden every bicycle, but I've been around a lot of blocks. So clinical psychology, human potential in the Western forms, uh, the Buddhist traditions, other spiritual traditions as well, coaching, human resources training, character development for children, all these different methods and so forth, or ways of practicing. I think they fall into three basic categories, three kind of big warehouses. So I mentioned the first warehouse, be with what's there. Second great warehouse of skillful means is to prevent or reduce or abandon the negative. What's painful, what's harmful. Obviously, pain and harm a lot are in reference to certain values. Again, there's no way out of values, so it's problematic. For example, we let tension drain out of the body. We shift ourselves in our seat to move away from something that's starting to harm our back. We let go of exaggerated grievances with other people. We let go. That's the second great way to practice. So it's release. Release, prevention, abandonment, reduction. And then the third great mode of practice is to grow the good. Is cultivation, development, encouragement of greater mindfulness, encouragement of steadiness of mind, uh, encouragement of wholesome intentions, the gradual acquisition of useful perspectives, including in everyday forms of relationship at work, uh, in your family, uh, with friends, politically, and otherwise. For example, people can develop inner strengths of various kinds that are useful in different kinds of ways. So all three are really important. I've used a metaphor, I think you know, the mind is a garden, and so we can witness the garden or pull weeds or plant flowers. Now, obviously this typology has distinctions in it. It's dualistic or trialistic or something, tripartite. Fundamentally, there are these differences and these methods work together. For example, to be able to simply be with it and just not try to, you know, prod and pull and push your feelings takes the acquisition for most people of significant inner resources. Yeah. In psychological language, distress tolerance, steadiness of mind, uh, being able to disidentify from what you're experiencing, witness it rather than being swept away by it, forms of self-regulation, knowing why in the world you're doing that. People used to say to me, feel your feelings, Rick. I said, Fuck you. My feelings hurt. <laughs> anyway, um, so they all go together. And also, if you're going to engage wise effort under the heading of working with the mind in the second and third great ways, pulling weeds and planting flowers, you need to be with the results to do it in this most skillful way. So for me, when I focus on what has been, I think, in many ways, the forgotten stepchild in clinical psychology broadly, and frankly, also in the movement of the Eastern traditions into the West, the forgotten stepchild of bhavana, of mm. cultivation. Mm -hmm. I have a particular interest in that for multiple reasons. That interest in bhavana, which, or cultivation or development, which is present in my website and so forth. And interestingly, a common term just meaning meditation in the East. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, that is very interesting. I didn't know that. That interest in cultivation, in growing and protecting flowers so they bear fruit, as it were, in the garden of your mind, is in the larger context of these other two forms of practice and in the larger context of the primacy of the first of these. Being able to simply be with what's there, ultimately in the most radically accepting and non-interfering and non-fabricating kinds of ways.
So in a non-critique mode, but in a really just mode of curiosity and openness, take us through like Rick Hansen on the edge of the present moment, having all three of these types of relationship to experience. Well, that's really great. See, if you're in the first of these, and maybe you're in there for 10 days in a row on a retreat where it's all about that. And it's wonderful to be all about that because so much, uh, as you know, of most psychology, coaching, human resources, training, and other forms of intervention are about the second and the third modes of practice. Mm -hmm. Forms of you know, getting rid of the bad and grow the good. And it's kind of framed like that pretty mechanistically. It's a great corrective to that. And it was in my own life. I was good at working with the mind, the second and third modes of practice. And it was so useful for me. And many people, including you, Michael Taft, have been really good influences on me. In hard, to, hard to believe. <laughs> Isn't that demonstration obvious in front of you? <laughs> anyway, well, the point is, often if you think about you're in day-to-day -day life and you're being functional. You're naturally doing different kinds of wise effort throughout your whole day. Hmm. You're helping yourself. Maybe you have you realize, oh, the way I thought about that at work was not true, or I believed something. Oh, oh I've been now I understand better. Or oh, I, that way of doing things isn't as skillful. Or you you watch somebody do something a little more effectively. How they run a meeting or use Excel in their on their computer and you go oh, oh that's cool so you let go of some other old way of doing it and maybe also in your mind you recognize that there's some form of learning because we're designed to learn including negatively especially in childhood so something pops up that you recognize in real time as a legacy of being bullied in school or growing up with a father let's say who's aggressive and dominating and it's scary etc and you recognize and you know oh, I, I can let that go I, I don't need to do that or I don't need to fuss with that inside my own mind we're doing that routinely throughout the day so there's tons of wise effort that's normally and naturally happening throughout the day and again I would invite people who are critiquing wise effort to be with your mind all day long and watch how often you are using wise effort to a good end yes. and think about the problems that would arise if you weren't using wise effort including just simply driving a car on the freeway so what I'm cultivating, that term deliberately, is a more and more continuous and radical, including meaning at the root of things, being with the mind stream in a way that feels, using your term, more and more radically and fully deconstructed continuously. So I'm working on that. Notice again the term. I'm trying to help that happen more and more inside me. And so it becomes more of the habit of my mind, which for me means it becomes more and more embodied in my brain, which is embedded in my body and life altogether. When I'm deliberately bringing attention to this quality of presence, let's just call it that from a placeholder term, you can immediately feel my voice dropping yes. and just lot just bo-bum. And I love that. I love it. I totally love it. And um, what seems useful, and if not useful, is fascinating, at least to me, is flicking back and forth between a first-person and a third-person perspective mm -hmm. in ways that are useful, hopefully. And so first-person perspective feels instantly saturated with not knowing, 
right at the front edge of now, right hanging out in the first half second of the windshield of consciousness. Just hanging out, letting go continuously. Very foamy, a sense of I is very deconstructed really quickly. It's great. Lots of pleasure, happiness in it, peacefulness, and not bound, and a growing sense of a kind of intimation of the transcendental, of unconditionality, possibility, freedom, always just prior to the congealed actuality of the embodied, physicalized moment. Mm. Yeah, so I can go there. If one of the great happinesses of my life and great surprises, and I feel incredibly grateful and blessed about it, is that I can go there more and more at will. Yeah, and then how does that interact with the other two modes? Well, in the increasingly surrendered to, submitted to, or pervading, dropping in to that mode of just being with, or might have other ways of talking about it, presence fully, wise effort needs to fall away, because wise effort gets in the way. Yeah. And so just to be crystal clear, when, not, when I'm teaching meditation, or teaching, or just guiding, or teaching a retreat, or being there myself, I would encourage people in the moment that you're trying to help yourself most fully abide at the front edge of now, utterly unattached to what's happening in the stream of consciousness in that moment, I would encourage people to not engage wise effort. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's very helpful to slightly step out of your practice there at the front edge and help yourself register a factor that helps you stay there so that you get a little bit more developmentally skillful at staying there. Again, development, learning and change over time, and then go back to it. That is very interesting is, you know, what are the lumps in the gravy? Like, there you are in, you know, this radically open, accepting space, and then something comes along and just you start to seize up start to seize up and, and you may notice that over and over and you know one way of approaching that is just iterative try to sit through it and accept but that might not be all that skillful that's right sometimes i think it's very helpful to pull out of that way handle something and then step back and then the question is on a time scale that's longer and longer. So part of what we're talking about is time scale. Like yeah. what's useful to do inside a second? It's kind of a long time when your mind is really quiet. Mm -hmm. And then what's useful to do sometimes over a span of dozens of seconds or a minute or two or three, including during a deep meditation. I would add that being able to see the silliness and... <laughs> arbitrary constructedness of a sensation or an emotion or a thought that I'm, let's say, having under the heading of that first mode of practice, I'm just simply being with it, that helps me be more effective when I engage wise effort. It helps me let go of the neurotic bullshit in my mind faster because I just really get how empty it all is. And it also helps me be more receptive in my body to beautiful, useful, profound experiences so they land more and leave beneficial residues behind and but flip the other way my capacity to rest here at peace is really served by the development over time in me of a deeply embodied core of being in me of peacefulness and lovingness and contentment which is bhavana it's a mood you've cultivated yeah yeah, yeah. 
deliberately. Yeah, it's more fun. And man, I can totally enjoy the lusciousness of an apple or just I can look at the weirdest stuff and just get blissed out by it the, really fast. The Enneagram 7 version of meditation. <laughs> well, no, I'm talking about walking down the street and seeing dog shit glistening in the sunlight. Yes. Like, wow. But So my point is, if you're interested in ordinary hedonism and sensuality, these fairly austere meditative trainings are really useful. But of course, that's not their point, ultimately. But anyway. So what do you think is going on uh, neurologically in the level one or stage one or mode one? Yeah. This kind of like continually deconstructing fountain or of experience. It's such a fascinating, wonderful place. And yet one of the things you bring to the table is a real understanding of the brain. Yeah. Other people, of course, who are disclaimer here, professional neuroscientists, bench neuroscientists, Judson Brewer, Richie Davidson, other folks, Willoughby Britton, people like that. And that's not what I do. I think of myself as a methods guy. That said, I'm conversant with their material and what they've published. And so two things here. The first is the fundamental metaphor that, of course, we don't want to be trapped in. We want to use it. We don't want it to use us. But the fundamental metaphor of eddies in the stream. So we have an eddy a swirl, a whirlpool. We can all maybe right now remember or just imagine sitting at the side of a river or an eddy in a stream or we see a cloud in the sky swirling along. And we can recognize that what we have there is a patterning of physical reality, an eddy in the stream. And we can also recognize that that metaphor of eddies in the stream can be applied at all scales of time and space. So we can imagine things that are happening very quickly or very slowly. Uh, the slow rotation of the Milky Way galaxy. What is it, 200 million years or something or yeah. to go around? That's a long swirling of that eddy, but it is. The other way, flush the toilet, you know, vroom, see that eddy going down the drain. And also you can imagine it as well, at different scales of space. Okay. So that's a fundamental metaphor, which includes this underlying idea of a patterning. There is, in effect, an organizing, which means, in effect, a reduction of entropy, mm -hmm. disorder. There's increase of order, less disorder in the patterning, in the nature of the patterning. And implicit in this notion of eddies is the reality that all eddies disperse eventually, one way or another on one scale or another. Okay, so now, the brain. For us to have experiences, and by extension as best we can imagine, for any and all animals with a nervous system that are having experiences. So I'm willing to believe that birds and squirrels and cats and dogs and monkeys are having experiences. I suspect lizards and crabs, and then it gets interesting, are spiders having experiences. At some point all the way down in terms of a very simple nervous system, maybe uh, these tiny, tiny little worms that are a millimeter long are not having experiences. Maybe they're zombies. But at, from the level of, I think, shrimp at least on up, creatures are having experiences. Certainly we're having experiences. That's where we start. Yeah. Uh, there is experience. Okay. For experience to occur, different kinds of neural processes must also be occurring at different scales of time and space in the brain. 
And so now we're talking about the neural substrates of consciousness. And if you alter those substrates casually with a cup of coffee or less casually with something like a concussion or a brain tumor, you can alter experiences. And flip the other way, the deliberate use of experiences, which involve underlying neural correlates, can leave lasting traces behind in the brain, much as in your example of these monks, these monastics, who have been able apparently to train their brains to be less reactive after receiving something painful than an untrained person and therefore an untrained brain. Okay, so how does the nervous system work? Well, what it does too, its function is to represent information. So we have a physical substrate, the nervous system, that represents information, much like uh, in the room we're in right now, the physical substrate of air and the sound waves moving through it represent the meanings of the uh, 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 blah, blah, blah sounds that we're making. And in much the same way, physical activity inside the nervous system, especially headquartered in the brain and especially certain major networks in the brain, represent as best we can tell, the information that's going through it that in some way is related to, in ways that still remain mysterious, our conscious experience, phenomenology, including the so-called qualia, including the color red, uh, smell of roses, taste of cinnamon, feeling of being hurt, feeling of being loved. All right, so long story short, for the neural substrates of consciousness to do their job, fertile noise must represent signals that are by their nature less noisy and they are by their nature a reduction of uncertainty, a reduction of entropy and ordering, a meaningfulness is happening that is a patterning of underlying neural activity. Thus, the hearing of a sound, the seeing of a sight, the remembering of a memory and so on is itself an eddy in the stream of consciousness, is itself a patterning of the underlying physical neural processes that are going on many scales from tiny tiny quantum activity at synapses scaled up to larger formations of networks and and so on so we're finding some signal in the noise yep so what you can observe is that two things are happening as you move more into presence at the front edge of now in your experience One thing that starts to happen is that there's more and more of a sense of experience as a whole. All present, all known in some sense, not presuming a knower, but all conscious, in a way that's very inclusive and non-differentiated. So there's a sense of what becomes known in the field of awareness encompasses all the sensations, all the sounds, all the sights, And in a sense, there becomes a sense of the being process as a whole unfolding now with, I liken it to, lots and lots of little bubbles popping, uh, lots and lots of little parts to it that are just emerging over a time scale of quarter seconds, a sensation kind of coming into form, a thought emerging, a memory, a view, a sense of I appearing, arising, forming and then passing away again. All these mini eddies Mm -hmm. are appearing and dispersing, forming and dispersing in the streaming of consciousness. 
So that sense of things as a whole is happening. But then very interestingly, over the course, let's say, of a practice, and also over the course increasingly of a life, and definitely in my understanding, in the run-up to nirvana, nibbana, cessation, the signals start dropping out. It gets quieter and quieter. There are fewer and fewer eddies. There's simply the streaming. There's a going onness of being. When people drop into nirvana or into cessation, their heart doesn't stop beating. Metabolism doesn't stop occurring in the nervous system, including the, in the neural substrate or correlates of consciousness. But signals start dropping out. Sounds start dropping out. Thought dropped out a long time ago. Discrete emotions are dropping out. Intentions are dropping out. Any sense of I is just really dropping out. Technically, in the tradition I know best, and there are other ways of doing this, and I don't want to be exclusivistic about them in the Buddhist Theravadan kind of roots tradition I know best. There's a progression, as you well know, through the four form jhanas and then the four formless jhanas. But if you just look at the description of those jhanas, traditionally in the Pali canon, the early teachings of the Buddha, as you know, and in modern teachers, things are getting quieter. Less and less is happening. Yeah, less and less is happening. So for myself, it serves my practice to have the third person understanding of the function of the nervous system of representing information, the arbitrariness and of that constructed by 600 million years of evolution of the nervous system of life. It helps me not take it so personally. I take it less and less personally uh, the more I know about it. Uh, and I'm using the word I, hopefully, more as a this person rather than some ego inside. But anyway, so knowing that the signals are dropping out and then it's okay and you're going to go on being helps release the mortal fear of dying or ending, which can get in the way of doing this practice. It definitely comes up at that point for many people. Yeah. So the body keeps on going. You can trust that. Your heart will keep beating. Metabolism will keep going. But it's only fertile noise. Only fertile noise. And you just can kind of feel it. It's just formations are occurring. Eddies are appearing and passing away, particularly prior to entering states of consciousness where you lose all ordinary sense awareness. Mm -hmm. But they just don't matter. More and more, you're just kind of with a quivering potentiality at the front edge of now, fertile noise that could represent something but doesn't, which, to me, part of what's really amazing about this gives you an intimation of transcendental unconditionality. Mm -hmm. You're having a conditioned inside the natural frame intimation of or intuition about what's like ultimate transcendental outside the natural frame unconditionality as you rest increasingly in and become more and more comfortable with the sense of unconditioned neural in effect possibility that is available for the representation or the patterning of the next eddy of sound sight sensation thought feeling and so forth so typically, what you're describing would be called something like bare attention. Yeah. And in several other podcasts, which I think you listen to, we talk about that in the modern neurological context of sort of like sinking into the pre-processing of individual sense streams. Mm -hmm. So before 
let's say the visual sense has fully constructed what you're seeing all the way to the, let's say, normal state of total clarity in the meditation, you're actually contacting it much early in its construction. And it has that sense that you're describing of its potential. It's in a way unclear, but in another way it's fresh. And there's a kind of absolute sense of spontaneity and also joy in that mm-hmm. right now yeah. would, do you think this description that Shinzen and I and several other people have been using of that you're actually learning to contact sensory experience earlier in its interpretation you know how the brain has these layers yep. and layers and layers of processing for each sense Definitely. you're learning to contact an experience earlier in yeah. that processing yeah I think that's totally true. Uh, It makes total neurological sense. And one way of looking at it, you may already know, is that attention, so we're talking about bare attention. So now attention itself has two major branches or processing streams that in the second of the two has two branches. So it gives us three aspects of attention. And it's a way of thinking about and talking about uh, the first second of experience continuously, the first half second even. And the first of these branches is called alerting. And it simply is the recognition something new has happened. It's not yet processed. So in that sense, it's pre-processing. In the early Buddhist notion of the skandhas, the aggregates, it's the form aggregate in terms of the sequencing of the stream of consciousness with the first barest sense that something has happened. There's something there. We don't know where it is or what it is or why it matters or if it matters, but something has happened. And for animals, besides non-human animals, you could just imagine a a bird in your backyard. There are a lot of birds in my backyard these days because I put out a bird feeder as a Christmas present to me and to them. They're constantly swiveling their heads. They're constantly tracking what's happened, what's happened, what's happened. And in addition to external stimuli, we're constantly tracking internal stimuli. Something has happened. Maybe it's an uneasiness with somebody else around us, or maybe a pain has arisen in our back. Uh, Speaking about my own back, Uh, something has happened. Something has happened. So yes, we can train in, and I think many contemplative traditions, without knowing a darn thing about the neurology, and they didn't need to, to be effective, train in, uh, resting in, just sitting, just bare awareness, bare attention, right at the front edge of now. And in the process of repeatedly stimulating and training in that alerting aspect of attention, they strengthen it because neurons that fire together wire together. As you stimulate it and rest in it, you train it. It becomes more and more the habit of your mind to just sort of rest there in that alerting function before meaning has formed before even the vedness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, the hedonic tones of experience have had time to materialize, let alone the sense of self and taking things personally and so forth. So yes, training in that is fantastic. And for the record here, if it's useful, then the second and third processing aspects of attention come in. The second one's called orienting. And again, think animals in the wild, evolution in Jurassic Park. Something has happened. The second thing I need to know as a little dinosaur or an early rat-like mammal 200 million years ago or as an ewok as an ewok ewoks are 
different from <laughs> velociraptors or little rodent-like early mammals. But uh, Ewoks are wonderful. But of course, you would figure I would love Ewoks. Anyway, where is it? So I got to orient to it. Now that I know that something has happened, second, I got to know where is it? And then third thing I got to know is what's the relevance of it? Is it friend or foe at the most basic level? Jump or do I eat it or screw it or run away? What do I do with it? Or Would just you call it? that the arising of Edna at that point? Since it's yeah, kind of like good or bad. It's starting to come in. That's exactly right. That's right. And you, what's great is you can just watch this. For me, it's a meaningful metaphor. The front edge of the windshield of consciousness moving through time or time moving through you either way. So absolutely. What's really great is that that alerting stream of just pre-processing, let's say, is much more ancient in terms of the evolution of the nervous system and is also linked to a more ancient mode of knowing or relating to reality that is this more ancient mode that is much more impersonal and connected to everything rather than our more modern, egocentric, personal, differentiated sense of self. And what term would you use for that form of knowing? This draws on the work of James Austin, who's a neurologist and Zen teacher. And the term he uses is egocentric for that self-referential, what's it got to do with me, buddy, uh, way of looking at things or relating to things, including internal arising phenomena and stimuli. And the other mode that's more uh, sort of one with everything, impersonal, not privileging any form of self-referential perspective, he calls allocentric. And what's interesting is that literally regulated by little switches in the thalamus, and there are two thalamuses, thalami, one on either side of the hemispheres of the brain, this little switch naturally flips back and forth between egocentric and allocentric modes of processing. And you can really recognize this, just so if you kind of watch your own mind naturally, two to three times a minute, we toggle back and forth naturally between a more self-referential, what's it got to do with me perspective. Let's say you do it more visually. People can become quite aware of this visually. And then we toggle into naturally things impersonally as they are and as a whole, not privileging a particular perspective. It's a little bit like you're aware visually, let's say of your environment from the sense of what's it got to do with me and then you flick into a kind of bird's eye view that's more takes things as a whole. That bird's eye view, allocentric perspective is more ancient. It's really necessary initially. It's what our ancient ancestors first evolved in terms of the underlying neural architecture hardware that, that enables that. But then later, they evolved more and more capacity to have an egocentric perspective on friend or foe, what's it got to do with me? And as humans especially have really developed that. So long story short, training in that uh, you would call it pre-processing mode of being, or Austin and others might call it just training in the alerting function, mm -hmm. including shikantaza, just bear witnessing, just you're right at the front edge of now, I would put it. Training in that way of being, formally and informally, it strengthens your capacity to drop into that allocentric perspective in which you're, I call it, opening into allness. Abiding is everything. Feeling like what's happening locally is like a ripple in the vast tapestry of the universe. 
in that mode, everything seems to be quite fluid and natural and soft. It's a, quite a amazing mode to be in. Yeah, soft, right? I really enjoy exploring counterintuitive stuff. Like, I, I swear I'm going to teach a workshop called Buddhist Aggressiveness is Not an Oxymoron. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, like, how can you play tennis hard or drive a car or grind through emails? You know, my own personal teacher in burden. You know, how can you do that? Wow. Yeah. You know, dropped into everything, right? It's not easy to do that when you're sitting on a cushion, but it's easier. But to sustain that while you're arguing with your wife about how to set it stupid space heater. Yeah. And so what's step one, Rick? Well, I've really thought a lot about this because, of course, I'm a developmental guy. Okay, how do we do it? Or to flip it the other way, how do you reverse engineer the embodied form in the body of enlightenment? Mm. Like, man, sidebar, if you meet people, for me, Thich is a great living teacher, is an exemplar. People have their own living teachers or historically you read accounts. If you know anything about human psychology or evolutionary neurobiology, it's astonishing that anybody could do that at all. Yeah. That anybody, oh, blah, how do you do that? Like what? What's going on there? Because you're still eating, your heart's beating. Like, let's take these monks with incredible practice. They are walking saints, some of them. You just be in their presence and you go, whoa, this is really different. Whoa. Okay. And their report is really different. You put them in a scanner, you can't tell their brains apart from a normal brain. You've got to do really very sophisticated, highly granular kinds of interventions, like the one you were talking about earlier in Richie Davidson's lab, to be able to reliably sort a complete ordinary person's brain and someone who's done tremendous amount of personal practice and is a living saint. Like, what? Yeah, our measuring skills are still pretty crude in that department. Right, which is a way of saying that the difference in the brain is not gross. In other words, what seems like a remarkable, extraordinary difference in their experience of living moment to moment and what it's like to be around them is not well mapped to any kind of extraordinary difference inside the underlying hardware. So like what? So cutting to the chase, I'll just lay out seven steps that for me, have been a very meaningful mode of personal practice, and they make sense to me in terms of helping the body develop. And I want to add a point, which is there's a kind of humility that's implicit in helping the body develop, where we realize, man, of course, we are the body that's helping the body to develop. We're animals. We're designed to claw and scratch and crave and attach and be mean and all the rest of that. I mean, there's very strong tendencies there. And, you know, the brain is designed to hold on to learning, especially negative learning. So it's not a simple, easy thing to change over time. So there's a kind of humility, for me at least, that motivates this approach. And also a kind of sweetness. Hey, little monkey. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Hey, little monkey. Hey, little Ewok. Hey, little Ewok. Hey, little... We're a great ape, right? A new species of great ape. A subspecies of orangutans, in effect, has been recently discovered. I think we now have uh, seven cousins, eight members of the great ape family. Maybe you know more than I the actual number these days, but I think it's about that. So here we are. Woo, 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 woo. So, like, hey, sweet little monkey, how can I help you? 
what, what do you need? Where does it hurt? What would be useful for you? Applied both to oneself and to others, if one is a teacher, helper, so on. Okay, so in that context, seven steps I have found to be quite helpful, and they form a sequence that I teach and use in my own practice on different timescales, whether it's the timescale of a 45-minute meditation, say, or a 10-day retreat, or seven score and 10, hopefully, or more, lifespan altogether. So sequence is one, steady the mind. Really foundational. To be able to just plop your attention onto something and rest it there, especially if it's not very stimulating, like the sensations of breathing, breath after breath, is not a natural thing for most people. Yeah, you learn to concentrate, you learn to regulate, you learn to steady the mind. And there are neural factors of that that I teach. Second step, warming the heart. Feeling loved, feeling loving, compassion for yourself, compassion for others, cultivation of virtue, benevolence. It's hard to practice. It's hard to be serene when you're mistreating other people or caught up in tangles and wrangles with your in-laws, let's say. So warming the heart, opening the heart, practicing for the sake of others, not just for yourself. A sense of practicing together, cultivating together to the extent that that's meaningful. Third, abiding at ease feeling that needs are met, dropping into equanimity, the second noble truth of craving, tension, stressing, straining, including inappropriate personal development striving that you brought up in the very beginning. Helping that to fall away, one of the major ways to help that fall away is to internalize the felt sense of needs met because what drives craving in the body is an underlying biologically rooted sense of deficit and disturbance. Uh, something getting what I need. Yeah, something missing, something wrong. So if you repeatedly internalize the authentic sense of fullness and balance, enoughness already, then increasingly you can meet the next moment feeling already happy, loving, and peaceful, even as you deal with challenges. So third step, abiding at ease. Or as I talk about in my stuff, cultivating a green zone brain and resting increasingly on the basis of cultivating those so-called green zone traits. So this is not the U.S. base in Iraq that was getting mortared continuously. Right, 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 right. That's, that's what it's I think of when zone. I hear green zone. <laughs> think, yeah, green, green zone distinct from red zone. Okay. Obviously, it's dualistic, but it's a term I use. And it's a kind of way of talking about the transition into the third noble truth of Naroda cessation of the underlying engine in the second noble truth in buddhist psychology the buddha's drive theory of suffering expressed in the four noble truths the green zone is sort of the ordinary dude entry into aspects of the third noble truth Got it. okay then that's just that's foundational then we really kicked out the jams now we move into the remaining four steps in this progression experientially and and obviously there's a kind of spiral you steady the mind uh, that helps you sustain a warming of the heart which helps you have more of a felt sense of your relational needs met and some other good things too relational needs met help you feel safer and also more rewarded so it's the trifecta three needs met with one practice and on, because of that, you're now able to steady your mind even more deeply. So it's not just a narrow kind of seven-step sequence. There's a spiraling, in effect, through seven sectors as you spiral upward or downward, depending on your metaphor of positive development. Okay, so fourth step in the sequence is wholeness, because 
When we're fussing and feuding, there's a lot of activation of midline cortical activity. On the other hand, as you know, Norm Farb and others have shown that when people drop into the present moment, including in the pre-processing mode of just open, spacious mindfulness, not trying to intervene at all in the mind stream, networks on the sides of the brain, so-called lateral networks rather than medial or midline networks, that are especially predominant for right-handed people in the right hemisphere because it's specialized for gestalt holistic processing. So when you have a sense of, for example, the sensations of breathing in your body as a whole, that tends to naturally engage those lateral networks. A sense of surprise or delight also engages those networks and, as a detail, engages that more pre-processing or alerting aspect of attention because you're right at the front edge when you're surprised. What? Right? <laughs> so, uh, or delighted or even playful. Playfulness really pulls you into this as well. What? Right? Yeah. So uh, there are practices you can do to stabilize the sense of all sensations in the body known at once as a single unified gestalt. This relates to the jhana factor of ekagata, unification of consciousness, singleness of mind. And then you go further so that sounds and all the contents of consciousness and then awareness itself appear as simply mind as a whole. And one reason why that's useful, in addition to supporting peacefulness and presence and where we're going in the seven-step progression, it radically reduces suffering. Because if you look at it, the structural nature, the structure of all suffering is parts of mind struggling with other parts. Kind of joke about it. For example, you see a cookie, so now you have a percept of a cookie part. Then there's the desire for the cookie. That's the second part. Then there's a third part that comes in. No, no, you're on a diet. No cookies for you. You're gluten intolerant, right? And then a fourth part comes in. Tara Brock's voice. No, baby, you got to accept yourself. Relax. It's just a cookie. And then a fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, tenth, twelfth, eightieth part comes in. That's suffering. Sounds like suffering to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. On the other hand, boom, when you pop out into everything, you just take mind as a whole, which is right there evident moment to moment to moment. If we can be aware of mind as a whole, moment to moment to moment, this process unfolding, there's no problem in mind as a whole. It may contain pain, it may contain sorrow, it may contain outrage at the way the world is going, and yet that's not a problem. There's not that second art of constructive suffering added. Okay, that's the fourth step, wholeness. In the fifth step, I call it nowness, Uh, As you and I were talking about, you train in being able to hang out in that pre-processing mode, not getting tangled up, not getting swept away by what arises, not fabricating content yourself and then getting interested in it, not getting carried along by the mini-movies that arise, these sort of little eddies that try to hijack us in the global workspace of consciousness, as Bernard Bars talks about it you more and more just train in being here now, right at the front edge, letting go, not knowing, open to surprise, open to delight, letting go of control, being willing to be out of control about being out of control, really scary for people. Sidebar, one more reason why it's helpful to cultivate resources that help you be more and more comfortable with sustaining past a few seconds, this way of being continuously. That's the fifth step. 
sixth step in the progression, building on the five previous steps, is to open into allness. So that's the allness step. We've moved from wholeness to nowness to allness. So just as a casual hearer of those words, wholeness and allness sound like the same thing. Yeah, terms have problems. Great clarification. For me, wholeness is about taking experience as a whole. So it's still, in some sense, self-referential. Okay. Yeah, but it's very experiential. You're just relating to experience as a whole and sustaining. It's not that easy. The cognitive factor, if only in more superficial aspects, of a sense of experience as a unified gestalt, in which, interestingly, because the sense of self starts dropping out, because the sense of self is always a part, observing or fussing about or wanting to change other parts of the mind stream. Allness, for me, has an intellectual aspect that's based on, you could say, wise view. It also has a very felt aspect, increasingly, where, as uh, James Austin has written about, we start resting more and more and comfortably in that more allocentric view where, in a very felt way, we start experiencing what's happening locally as simply an expression of what's happening globally. And we experience our own biological livingness moment to moment as a local expression of ultimately the biosphere altogether and the physicality of the earth altogether really rested in just like the solar system and universe altogether and rested in deep time. So more and more there's a sense that the eddy that you are locally, including the eddy of insubstantial immaterial experience, and the local eddy that correlates with it of substantial material embodied biological living. It's uh, just a local patterning of one river of reality, one river of reality, a local eddying in that, a local patterning. And it starts taking you more and more into this patterning is not a problem. It's not binding. I'm deliberately trying to reverse engineer for me plausibly, neurologically plausibly, what seems to be the description of saints and sages about their own state of being and also kind of an observation of them. As a little bit of a hack, that's quite cool. One of the things that happens in the visual processing stream is that as gaze moves away from the body and moves more and more out, 10 feet out, 10 meters out, eyes rising to the horizon, we start naturally moving into that allocentric way of experiencing things. This is James Austin again. Yeah, Yeah, James Austin again. And also, interestingly, and to me, like, super cool, maybe one of the reasons why and how so many saints and sages talk about their own awakening experiences or something that matters to them having to do with a sense of sky of mind Mm -hmm. or looking up to the heavens or being startled by the sight of the evening star, Venus, and so on. So anyway, that's the sixth step is moving more and more into allness. I find for me, maybe for others, it can come across as a merely intellectual understanding. For example, that right now we are breathing stardust. Oxygen, nitrogen, carbon, carbon dioxide, other gases, any gas that's going in and out of our lungs with atoms that are bigger than helium 
those elements were born almost entirely, if not entirely, inside exploding stars. Holy moly, we're breathing stardust. We are stardust. There's something about knowing that, looking up at the moon and feeling our shared nature just totally takes me out. And this is step seven? Six. We're still on all this. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now, one way to put it is that maybe it's not the best term. I just use it. It works for me. Oneness. In which we begin to have intimations of unconditionality. We begin to really engage that these words shouldn't be taken concretely at all. The edge or between, or the interaction of the natural and the transcendental. Quick sidebar, I distinguish the supernatural, ghosts, reincarnation, clairvoyance, inexplicable but remarkably clear evidence of certain kinds of things. For me, that's not God. That's not the transcendental. And for me, when I say the transcendental, I'm comfortable with the more traditional Buddhist notion that's described in negations generally as unconditioned, deathless, formless. Other more theistic, explicitly theistic traditions would attribute consciousness and benevolence and sometimes bliss to the uh, divine, the transcendental, and ultimately perhaps personality. But so for me, I'm comfortable with using the term transcendental in a big tent kind of inclusive way for any and all folks, including just in the barest sense, uh, unconditionality, always just prior to conditioned, temporally bound processes occurring in time. So we have timeless and time, we have, therefore, timeless, the eternal. And then we have also time-bound manifestation and unfolding. So it, to me, is really interesting to explore how to be both in the natural and to train the natural. And at the same time, for those for whom it's meaningful, there would be some who would say, stop there, Rick. I'm signed up for the first six. After that, it's either irrelevant to me or I just don't think there is a transcendental. So I don't want to bullshit myself. I don't want to be deluded. Hey, hello, waking up is about letting go of delusion. I think any and all views or in some sense of the word experiences of the transcendental are delusional. I'm just not into it. I'm like, that's cool. I'm good there. You know, just moving through the seven steps is a big deal, especially the fourth, fifth and sixth ones. Tell us the seven again. For me, the progression is steady the mind, open the heart, abide at ease, be whole, come into now, open into allness, intimations of unconditionality. Mm. Helping yourself to the extent it's meaningful to you to become more accessible to, if not even lived by, consistently awake to, if it's meaningful to you, the unconditioned, ultimately the divine. And I'm a theist of the three options, atheist, you know, dogmatic assertion, you know, conviction that there is no such thing, agnostic, could be, don't know, cool. Or theist, like, yeah, I think logic and experience tells me there really is a transcendental that is meaningfully categorically distinct from the natural, even if it is the ground of the natural in a Vedanta kind of sense, or a fundamentally non-dual kind of sense. So I 
uh, again, I'm reverse engineering saints and sages of different traditions who really talk about this. And my own personal experience of it, it's a funny way to talk about it. I think about now a lot. And I practice with now, like, what the hell is now? It's the great mystery under our nose. The physics of now is completely mysterious. People make up words about it. That doesn't mean we understand it. Einstein said, oh yeah, there's gravity. And he could mathematically describe how gravity operated, whether it's on apples falling out of a tree or the orbits of the planets and so on around the sun. It doesn't mean we understand what gravity actually is. So now, and yet if you just sort of imagine that even as now instantaneously seems to disappear, to be renewed by the next arising something or other. Imagine that there's, even though now itself is temporally like a point in a line, it, it's dimensionless. It has no thickness. But imagine that it does a little bit. Or to put it a certain way, imagine what in effect is happening just before now continuously. Or imagine what's the field or space of possibility into which determined congealed actuality unfolds. Different ways of talking about it. And there are definitely people who are more eloquent about this than I am. Okay. So in that kind of a context, how it shows up for me is a sense of the front of me, as it were, is congealed, formed, determined, conditioned actuality. While the back of me, I don't mean it literally like the back of my body, even though I'm waving my hands like it is the back of me, is opened out into a field of infinite possibility because it's always not yet conditioned. Mm. Right? And to me, reverse engineering time, that's kind of a way, at least for me in my simplest way, of describing or making sense of what people who seem enlightened, including in very theistic, God-realized frames or more Arahant, Buddhist-type frames, they just seem to be like that. They're dealing with the real. They're running their temple or they're marching for social justice, say, or bearing witness to terrible things. While at the same time, behind it all, there's a sparkle. Uh, they're unbound. There's a freedom in it all. They have the taste of freedom. And it's in their mouth all day long. Yeah. If you're stably there. Excellent. Thank you, Rick. We have to bring this to an end at this point. All right. Well, thank God. Thank Michael. <laughs> thank the technology that enabled this to happen. Thank any and all who ever listened to this. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. 
I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup, or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>